Welcome to part two of our, our series, Extreme Home Makeover. Um, I promise you, I will not be giving you advice on how to renovate your home. You do not want to take that advice from me. And you don't want me to fix anything. Um, handyman, no. Uh, mechanic, no. You don't want me to fix anything. Much to my father and grandfather's chagrin, they, they did. I grew up on a farm. I don't know if many of you know that, but I grew up on a farm and I would be my little grandpa, you know, my grandpa's little shadow. And he would taught me from when I was this high how to fix things and all the rest. My dad did everything he possibly could to teach me how to fix things. My dad was, was, was telling me that you should go to a trade school. And I knew from a young age, nobody going to pay me for that. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. That, that, I knew that's not, that's not going to happen. That's, God's given me some gifts. That ain't one of them. So I'm not, I promise you I'm not going to give you home building advice. But I, what we are talking about is how to do an extreme home makeover in our, in our homes, in our relationships, the relationships in our marriages, relationships with our kids, relationships with, uh, you know, with our friends and neighbors. We're going to be talking a lot about kind of doing home renovation. And we call it Extreme Home Makeover because anybody remember that, that TV show a number of years ago, the, the Extreme Makeover Home Edition? You know, it, if you, many of you, I see many of you nodding. Uh, if you didn't see it, you're, you were missed out. But those of us who saw it, I mean, we're probably still getting goosebumps thinking about Ty Pennington yelling at, bus driver, move that bus. And if you were like me, that was the time I was like, cue the Kleenex. I'm going to start bawling because there's a family that's going to get, you know, reveal their whole, their dream home. And it's like, oh. Like, that was, it was just an emotionally powerful moment. And, and it's amazing in that show because they would, take, they would take a family, give you their whole backstory and why they deserved you know, the home to be renovated. And some of the homes, they would do additions or you know, spruce it up or renovate it. Other homes, they would completely flatten and start from scratch. And the difference is, is when you do a renovation, any renovation you're going to do, if the foundation is not strong, it doesn't matter how much lipstick you put on. The foundation's not strong. Come on, it doesn't, if the foundation's not strong, it doesn't matter how much you decorate it up, how much, you know, you can make it look flashy and nice on the outside. If the foundation's not strong, it, it's not going to last. And sometimes you got, you know, we, we got to flatten some things and start over. And we're talking about in this series, we're talking about foundations in our relationships that are invaluable for all of us to build up in order for us. We, we can't just read a book on marriage and, and say we're on track. We can't just go to a marriage conference and say everything's all good. We can't just, you know, get, you know, I don't know, advice from friends on relationship without having to check our foundation. So that's what this series is all about is is having a foundation. And can you imagine having a move that bus moment in your relationship? You know, uh, a renovation that completely transformed your relationships, your marriage, your, your, your relationship with your kids, or a relationship with your boss or coworker. Like just one of those move that bus where all of a sudden it's like, ah, there's something I got to, it's completely different than what it was. A complete renovation. Last week, we, we talked about, you know, the first foundation of a healthy relationship is love. Not love as society defines love, but love as Jesus defined love. And those are two different things. Society defines love as, you know, a feeling. We say things like, well, we fall in and we fall out of love. We fall in love. I fell in love. I fall, I've fallen out of love. According to the Bible, 
Uh, you can't fall out of love because love, according to the Bible, never fails. Right? It, it's, it never fails. The, the, the Bible kind of love is a different kind of love. The Jesus kind of love is, is different. Paul said this about, you know, in, to the church at Philippi in, in Philippians 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. In other words, it's not just good enough to have a, a mindset like of Jesus when you go to church on Sunday. And it's not just good enough to have your Christian mindset when you, you know, do your daily devotions for, you know, your 10, 15 minutes in the morning and when you do church on Sunday. We cannot, especially in Western society, it's too easy to have our Christian life and our other life, right? It's too easy to separate those things. And Paul, that's not just today, but that's back then. And Paul said to the church of Philippi, hey, don't just have the same mindset of Christ when you go to church. In your relationships with one another, have the same thinking as Jesus, which Jesus thought different. Jesus is, <laughs> how Jesus did relationships, so different than what was natural, kind of stood out, paid it, you know, pay attention to what he did, what he said, how he interacted with people. Amazing. Jesus was amazing. And so in our relationships, we need to have the same mindset as Jesus. When it came to love, Jesus had a mindset that love is patient, that love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus had a different kind of, of love your enemies, bless those who per, you know, persecute you. Who, like, Jesus had a different type of mindset in his teachings, but also in his, his actions. And it, it, was, it was different. I don't know, I haven't had a moment where I fell into patience. Anybody ever had that? Like, that's just, that's, I've, I've fallen out of patience. That's happened, but I've never fallen into patience. Because patience is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not based just on me. It's based on somebody else. And Jesus modeled that. But Jesus also modeled a different foundation. And, and the Bible talks about this foundation quite a bit. And the second foundation of a healthy relationship is, is communication. And I want to kind of teach some principles on communication. And here's what I know. After 25 years of, of pastoring and counseling all sorts of, of people. What I've known in any time I've done relationship counseling, not just marriage counseling, but just relationships, friendships, parents to kids, you know, um, coworkers. Anytime I've done relationship counseling, probably 95, maybe even up to 99% of the issues that the reason why people came to counseling, the issues brought forward, have issues to do with communication. What I've realized is that is that a healthy relationship generally has healthy communication. An unhealthy relationships generally have a lack of or poor communication. And that communication is a skill that is not natural. Being a good communicator is not a natural skill that we're all born with. Like, there's some people who are born talking, but you're not born talking well. Like, <laughs> like anyway. But today in society, don't you, have you noticed that our the skill of communication is becoming less frequent? Have anybody's noticed this? Nobody has, nobody is a parent of, and if you got, if you got your teenager sitting here, just look straight ahead. This is not the time to, to, to amen. But I just want to, I just want to point out that today communication, what I've noticed is communication is slipping, not just with our teenagers, but I've noticed 
that young people today, our children today, young people who have grown up with devices find it easier to text their friend, DM their friend, TikTok their friend, whatever it might be, and, and they, they'll be doing it right, sitting right beside each other. They can communicate this way through a device faster than they can look and ask a question and have a conversation. And nobody's noticed that? Okay? It, it's, not, it's not just the kids. Come on, my wife and I, we love people watching and we like going, you know, out in dates and stuff like this. Have you ever been to a restaurant and ever had played this game where you're like, let's guess how long this, these, this couple has been together based on the communication happening at the table. So if you see a, a couple and they're like eye to eye, engaged and full in conversation, that's the first date. <laughs> Guaranteed. If you see the couple, you see a couple where both of them are on their phones on date night. Yeah, they've been married for a while. That, I, that's none of you. I've never seen any of you out there, but I'm no, just kidding. Anybody ever seen that? Like, you see this stuff. Communication. It's, it's communication. We don't know how to communicate anymore. Well, the good news is, is that the Bible gives us some incredible principles. And there's a story that I want, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. There's a fascinating story in the Bible, and it just amazes me, like to no end amazes me, how this woman, her name is Abigail, how she communicated and diffused a very, very tense situation. The story starts off by telling us about a man named Nabal, who was a wealthy landowner, and he owned lots of sheep, herds of sheep, thousands of sheep and goats. Very, very wealthy man. He had lots of servants. And he had this, this territory, and David comes along, and this is the period of time where David is running from King Saul. King Saul is jealous of David and how famous David's getting and how popular David's getting, and so he chases David out. David's running for his life. And David, at this point, has been running for, for some years now. When David first left Saul, he left by himself, and it's pretty easy to hide himself in caves and different things when it's one man. By this time, we find David. David has 600 men and their families along with them. Can you imagine finding a cave to hide? I mean, that's a little bit more difficult. David's like, thanks, guys. This is, this is awesome. You're really helping me out. Yeah, uh, a lot different. But David's got 600 men and their families with him, and he's having, having now responsible to feed these 600 men and all of their families with them. You know, they've come and joined him. And one of the ways that David would feed them is he would typically, he would, you know, raid cities and, and, and battle. David was a warrior. He would fight. He would conquer. He would, you know, kill. He would steal is basically what David would do in order to feed his people. Well, David stumbled across this property of Nabal, who's wealthy, lots of land, lots of sheep. And David very easily could have done what, what would have been expected. He would have, could have gone in and conquered Nabal and taken all the, the, the sheep and the goats and all the rest of it and fed the 600 people. But David didn't do that. David came and instead he protected the lands. And in fact, instead of stealing Nabal's sheep, he actually set a guard around Nabal's property and, and warned, you know, fought off anybody that was trying to get at Nabal's land or property. And he protected him for some time. Well, it came to this, this season where it picks up the story in 1 Samuel 25, where there was a feast, you know, that was a, season, a festival that was going on. I don't know, maybe it's Thanksgiving. I don't know. But they had some sort of feast festival that there was supposed to be. And so David 
wanted to celebrate this festival, this, this Jewish feast, and he sent a couple of his servants to Nabal, and he, they sent him with this message of saying, hey, Nabal, we've been here protecting your property. We haven't stolen anything from you. We've been very respectful. Would you be able to lend us some food? And this is totally normal in those days. This is totally normal. People hospitable to one another, welcoming guests. We see all that through a bunch of Bible stories where they'd welcome guests and they'd feed them. So this is not an unusual request. Nabal's response is, who's this David? Which his, his gig is up when his next sentence is, this son of Jesse. Okay, so wait a second. You know his dad, but you don't know him. You know who his dad is, you don't know him. It, he, that farce wasn't going to go very far because everybody in the land of Israel, the Philistines, everybody in this territory knew who David was. David was a 17-year-old who had killed Goliath. David was one of the generals of Saul's army. David was the fugitive on the run from Saul because he, Saul was jealous of how popular David was. Everybody knew who David was. So Nabal's response is, who is this David? I don't know who you are. And it was an insult. Even if that was true, it's an insult. And, and so David's servants come back to, to David and say what, what Nabal said. And David is one of my heroes in the Bible. I love reading all his stories. I, I, incredible lessons. But one weakness David had, he had a couple, but one major weakness David had was he had a temper. And in fact, there's times where he just, with the wrong message, he would kill the messenger. Like, David had a temper. And, and David, this is one of those temper moments. He heard the insult, and he goes, he doesn't know who I am? Boys, strap up. We're going to introduce who I am to this dude. And he, it says that he took 400 men, all fully armed, and he had full intention of coming and wiping Nabal completely off the face of the earth, wiping out. In fact, he says, he said, he said, he even swore, you know, in God's name and said, be it to me. He says, if God, God may God hold against me if I leave one male alive in Nabal's household. This is, David's on a, a mission. Well, Nabal, Nabal had a wife named Abigail. And Abigail should have, okay, heard or seen all this kind of stuff, should have packed up all the children, any gathering she could, and split. Like, she should have ran. She should have done. Instead, we find out that she goes to David. And watch this interaction, because there's incredible principles in this story that are going to be, and if you're a note taker, you're going to want to take notes because there's principles here that are that in communication, techniques that she uses in communication that even though this is thousands of years ago are still very, very applicable today. And we could learn, we could use, I could use, we could all use these skills. Look at this. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. It says, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. So the first thing she does is she bows to the ground, which could be significant or insignificant. It's easy to read past, read past all of that and going, well, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Because what she did is she revealed to David that she's not a threat. She also revealed to David that he was worthy of respect. And she gave, listen, this is amazing, 
She gave David what he needed most, not what she needed most. What she needed most was her life saved, her family's life saved. But she gave David what David needed most. What David needed most was respect. And she starts by bowing. And, and here's point number one in a technique that she uses is you have to create a safe environment. What, this, what I mean by that is any relationship in which there is safety, you can communicate, you can talk about anything. If both people in the, in the relationship feel safe, you can discuss anything. Anything's on the table, you can talk anything. Difficult, not difficult, like you can talk about anything. The moment that one or both parties feel unsafe, you can't talk about anything. Like if, if somebody, if one or more, both parties feels unsafe, you can't have a discussion. You, you can't talk about anything. So the first thing that, that Abigail does that is significant, hugely significant, is Abigail makes David feel safe by saying, I am not a threat. I recognize your authority. I'm bowed down before you, so I'm not going to threaten to stab you or kill you. I'm, and I'm giving you the respect you need. Not, not what I need, I'm giving you the respect you need. And she immediately makes David feel safe enough to listen to her next comment. Because as she approached, David could have just said, oh, here comes one of Nabal's. I'm on a mission. Wipe her off. But she bows down right away and makes David feel safe enough to listen. That's, so the key to a relationship and, and communication is, are we safe? Do we feel safe? Do I feel safe? Do, does... Whoever I'm communicating with feels safe. And if there's a lack of safety, how do, I, how do we create safety so that we can have a conversation? So the second thing she does is it says, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Which, when you read this, you're going, well, there is nothing, nothing that she's done wrong. And you might say, well, she married Nabal, but even that wasn't her choice. In those days, that wasn't her choice. Right? And then she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. I, I'm fascinated by this comment, but yet this comment is brilliant. It's brilliant on multiple, multiple facets. Number one, this comment on me alone my Lord be the blame, is brilliant because, number one, she accepts responsibility, which we learned in the last series, gives you the ability to respond. Okay, when you accept responsibility, you now have the ability to respond. The second reason why it's brilliant is because by communicating on me alone be the blame, she gave herself the authority to speak on behalf of, of all the household that David's going to wipe out she gave herself, by accepting responsibility, she gave herself the authority to deal with David. Had she not done this, she's just, she's just a woman. She's just a, she's just a wife. Who, who does, like, David could have just passed on, bowed down, yeah, fine, and moved on and left her on, on the ground and just walked by and did what he wanted to do. When she starts the conversation by saying, hey, on me and me alone, be the blame and accept responsibility, it gave her the ability to respond and it gave her the authority to speak. Which, this is key, because what we like to do, don't we live in a society that it, we value being right more than anything else? Like, we're, we're, we live in a society 
that being right is, and she wasn't wrong in anything, and yet she accepted the wrong. And we're in a society that is so afraid of being wrong. No, nobody watches Facebook? Where we fight on who's right and all my rights and all the rest of it. Man, I, the communication that happens on Facebook, I was like, number one, it's not safe. Number two, everyone wants to be right. But not everyone can be right. And when's the last time you heard somebody say, hey, on me and me alone, I'm responsible. What? I'd pay attention, wouldn't you, to that Facebook post. You know what the problem with my country is? Me. Now I'm listening. Isn't that right? You see what she did? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. David's listening. And then she says this, verse 24. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. The, second, the third thing that she does is she gives respect. You know, she accepts the responsibility. Third thing, she asks for permission, which is another way of creating safety. Because here's, here's what I know. In a highly tense situation, it's respectful to ask for permission. You can't just assume that your wife is ready to have the discussion, that your husband is ready to have the conflict, that your boss is ready to have the, that conversation, that tough conversation. You can't always assume it. It's respectful to say, hey, we need to talk about this. Is it okay? Can we talk now? Asking permission is a huge sign of respect, but it's also a way of, another way of creating safety. So she asked for permission. Then she goes on and she says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. Yikes. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Na the word Nabal means fool. So she's like, <laughs> I, he was aptly named is what she's saying. Right? Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. This is, you can look at this and going, okay, this is just a wife sick of her husband dissing her husband. No, 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 wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait. How she started the conversation is everything. She started the conversation on me. Remember? She said, on me and me alone be the blame. She accepted responsibility. She didn't just cast the responsibility on her husband. She accepted, it's my fault. Me is the blame. Then she, at the same time, she didn't deny the problem. She knew the problem. She knew David knew the problem, and she wasn't going to skirt around the problem, and let's, let's not say what the real issue is. She, said, she identified the problem, and th this is step number four, is clearly define the problem. In conflict, conflict is the space between what you expect and what you experience. Conflict is the, the space between. It's that gap between what you expect and what you experience. If you have an expectation and the experience is different than your expectation, there's a gap. And the greater the distance between your expectation and your experience, the greater the conflict. And the key to every healthy conversation and every conflict resolution, the key is to identify, clearly identify, what that space is, what that gap is. And the more clear you can define that space, it often starts by defining your expectation, 
But the more clearly you can define what that space is, the more clearly we can actually resolve the problem. She wasn't negating that this, the expectation. David's expectation was that he would be shown respect because he'd been protecting Nabal's thing. She, and she knew that her husband was wrong, but yet she accepted responsibility, and then she clearly defined the gap and said he acted like the fool. Right? He didn't do what's right. And then watch, amazing, because now the conversation, she's created enormous safety with David. David's listening even now, and she can speak more. She speaks more. She says this, now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as uh, your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood. Where, <laughs> what? David's got a sword on his side and he... God's restrained from shedding blood. David just hasn't got to the house yet. But watch what she's doing. Look, at she says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. She uses a brilliant strategy here, a brilliant technique. What she does, this is what's amazing, is she views David, and she changes the story in her own head, but she views David not as the enemy and not as the evil man, not as the one who's wrong, even though David in this instance is wrong. She views David as a man after God's own heart, one who's got a righteous heart, who is, is going to make the right decision. He hasn't made the decision yet. She hasn't stopped anything yet. And she says, hey, the Lord stopped you from, from shedding blood. I know you're a good man. I know you, you know that this is a mistake and God's stopping you, all this kind of stuff. She's projecting on him the goodness in him, calling out the goodness, not the evil, not what he's going to do is wrong, not his anger. She's not highlighting all of that stuff. She's highlighting this heart is good. He's a good man. He's after God's own heart. And she highlights all this. And she uses a technique, which brilliantly, she uses a technique that is called contrasting. And psychologists talk about this and they teach in, in proper communication to use the art of contrasting. The art of contrasting is the moment that you feel, the moment the other person feels unsafe, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to fight or flight. They're going, to, they're going to either attack or they're going to get defensive and run. And you can tell when somebody feels unsafe because they're, they get really defensive and they attack or they get really defensive and they run. And then you know if they're running from the conversation, I don't want to talk about it. You know, I, I don't want to, or you're always doing it. And they start attacking you. That's an indication that they feel unsafe. So what, what Abigail does is she uses the art of contrasting. And the art of contrasting is, I'm not saying, David, you're wrong. I'm not saying that you're an evil man. I'm saying, I'm saying that you're a man after God's own heart. You're a righteous man, and you're not wrong in all this. And God's, you're on God's side. And, God's, and, and by using this art of contrasting, David's feeling even more safe. And she's subtly poking at the very things that David has written in the Psalms, written about who God is, written that God is on my side and my enemies will flee, all these kind of stuff. And she's kind of using his words, not fair, using his words against him. 
and using contrasting. Then she goes on. She says, please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Is he? He's got his sword on. He's got his armor on. He's about to wipe out her family. And she's like, I know, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil will not be found in you all your days. She's calling out his goodness. Do you see this? It's remarkable. I mean, I read this and I was like, this woman is unbelievable. Because isn't it, isn't it just human nature for all of us to assume the worst in people, not assume the best? Like, it's not natural for any of us to assume the best in anyone, is it? Oh, automatically, like, we like to assume the worst in somebody. Well, they're at it again, and they mean this, and they're trying to take me out, and they're just like this person. They just do this one. They're just like that. And we assume the worst, and because we assume the worst, we, we attack based on our assumptions. And then she starts this conversation. She starts this verse by saying, please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant. Again, she's like, Nabal's the problem, but please forgive me. Which is amazing. She has nothing to apologize for. She hasn't done anything wrong, and yet she's asking for forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? Like, So point number six is, when appropriate, ask for forgiveness. And it's okay to say, I was wrong. And according to this, even when you're not in the wrong, it's okay to say. Isn't that something? And she continues on, she says this, should anyone rise up to pursue you? And seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound uh, in, the, in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He will sling out um, as from the hollow of a sling. What she's done here in the last couple of verses is she changed the story in her own head. She had every right to say, David is a hothead. David is the enemy. David is wrong. David is, 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 a, like, is an evil man, like he's overreacting. She had every reason to assume the worst in David and should have. And yet, what she says here, she assumes the best in him and she changes the story. This whole idea of changing the story, let, let me give you an example. I, I use this technique driving. I've told tales on myself many times, but I am not a patient driver and the drivers in this city they push they push they push me a little bit and i i apologize to any of you that i've had road rage with i just no i'm just but 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 here's one thing that i've 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 started using this technique so when when somebody cuts me off or somebody's doing you know pulling out like whatever it might be something does something driving and and i I've changed, I simply use the technique of changing the story in my head. And I'm thinking the reason why, and I just do something like as simple as this. The reason why they cut me off is because they just got a really bad news report about somebody in the hospital and they're rushing to the hospital. They have to get there and their, their mind is on that and they've got an emergency and they need to get to right now. That's why they're doing it. And immediately, immediately, my emotions go from, 
to, it's okay. Nothing in the situation changed. Nothing changed except for the story in my own head. So what would happen if instead of assuming the worst of our spouse, assuming the worst of our kids, assuming the worst of our boss, assuming the worst of our coworker, what if we simply changed the story in our head? We would approach the conversation completely different. And our approach to the conversation would actually create safety, which would allow the conversation to happen. Does that make sense? What Abigail did is just, just absolutely incredible. So then verse 30 says this, and when the, and when the Lord does uh, for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, she's talking to who he's going to be, not just who he is, like talking about who he's going to be. This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord. What's not going to cause grief? The fact that you just wiped out my family. Hey, you're going to be saved from this. And be, when you become king, you're not going to have any regrets when you don't do this. Like this is... She's more concerned about his reputation and his conscience than she is her life. Who is this woman? Like, I'm reading this, I'm like, wow. And then she says, both by shed blood without cause, which she just called him out, and by my Lord having avenged himself when the Lord de deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And I love this. She's like, David, I know, I know. I know that this is, you're not going to want to do this. I'm more concerned about your reputation, your, your regret, your conscience than I am my own life. And then she slips in, did you see this at the end? She slips in a little ask. Don't forget about me. She didn't start with that. Because if she was started with what she needed, what she wanted first, David wouldn't have listened. Wouldn't have been safe. It would have been all about her. He would have either killed her or just moved on and ignored her. But she slips in what her needs, she's clear what, what her expectation is, and she slips that in at the end after she's made it clear that she cares more about David than herself. Amazing. So how did David respond? So David received from her hand what he had uh, brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I've listened to you and granted your request. And they lived happily ever after. Um, no, this is real life. This <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice if all of our conflicts turned out this, this way? This good? And the fact is, they don't. Because in the midst of every conflict and in the midst of every relationship, there's people. <laughs> and we're messy. And we're unpredictable. And we all come in with baggage and our own hurts that we, we bring into our relationship that we, we can't get through. We've got our own fears and insecurities. It's messy. So what do we do with that? How, how do we, like, we can't just have this perfect system and it works every single time. What do we do? Well, Paul actually answered that in Romans 12, and he said this. If it is possible, I love the fact that he clarified that. If it is possible, meaning that there's sometimes it's not going to be possible. But he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, in other words, you can't hold yourself responsible for the other person. You're not responsible for them. But if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, you can control you, boo. Right? right? If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Then he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, when you've been wrong, but leave room for God's wrath. Okay. 
Okay. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I was like, okay, well, God's going to get them. That's not, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's quoting Old Testament. Right? And, and it's not that God's going to get them. But what this is saying is that God's paying attention, and if it's a possible, your role is to, is to live at peace. If it's possible, live at peace with everyone. God will take care of the rest. And in the story of Nabal and Abigail, God, God took care of it because within days, Nabal dropped dead. And Abigail, what did David do? David said, I need that woman next to me. Any woman that can talk like that, communicate like that, I need her next to me. Also, earlier on, it says she was very beautiful in appearance. There was that too. She was the total package. Like, she can communicate. Anyway, <laughs> Dave is like, check. But listen, 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 listen. Here's today's takeaway. Communication in a relationship is like oxygen is to life. Without it, it dies. Without proper communication, a relationship dies. With it, it's going to live. And here's, here's, here's what, in the story of, of David, David had multiple wives. And there's a massive contrast in the communication style of Abigail, who we just learned about, and another wife that David had called Michael. Remember Michael? Michael was Saul's daughter. Michael was the one who's famous for calling David out when David was dancing before the Lord in the ark, and, and, and she reamed David out. She gave him a new one, all the rest of it. And David dismissed her. And here's why. Michael was concerned about her reputation more than she was David's. And her communication, she violated all these rules, and that relationship, Michael and David, died. Michael, uh, David and Abigail, with communication, that relationship lived and went on. So in our own relationships, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for just the principles in, in your word. The story's thousands of years old. But yet the principles from Abigail and the art of communication are still as valid, if not more today than ever. And God, I pray that you'd help each one of us in our relationships to to take these lessons from Abigail and to learn what we can from her and apply them to our own marriages, our own parenting styles, our own work relationships. And God, give us the wisdom to know what to do and what to say and the courage to be able to do it and say it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to begin a relationship with him and maybe one of the reasons why you're hesitant to begin a relationship with Jesus is because of the poor communication style of some of his representatives of the church <laughs> and all of us who communicate and we're, we're seeking to seek our own, protect our own reputations instead of the reputation of our king. And I want you to know that Jesus loves at another level. Jesus communicates at another level. Jesus Jesus is so different than religion. Religion wants to protect itself and its own reputation. Jesus, he's all about you. 
He loved you so much, he went to the cross so that he could have a relationship with you. And all you need to do to begin a relationship with him is to confess with your mouth that he is God. And we're going to do that right now in a prayer. We'll pray together. And if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose again from the dead and therefore is God, then right here, right now, you can begin a relationship with him. It's not joining our church, not at all. It's not joining religion, not at all. It's a personal relationship, you and him. Let's pray this together. Everyone repeat this after me. If you're watching online, pray with me wherever you are. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God, and I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, for accepting me just as I am, I give my heart to you, in Jesus' name, amen. I can ask everyone to close their eyes and bow, their, bow your heads out of respect to the people around you. If you prayed this prayer for the first time, would you just boldly raise up your hand and give me a wave and say, yeah, Pastor, I prayed this prayer the first time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Awesome. I'll look around one more time, make sure I didn't miss anyone. Thank you, thank you. If you pray this prayer the first time you're watching online, just click like on the comment below. I have decided, and our team will reach out to you and give you a Bible as well. And those who raised your hand in the room, if you join us in the lobby after the service, we have a Bible. It's our free gift to you as well. It explains what this relationship's all about. Isn't God good?